Welcome. Welcome all to the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. It's wonderful to see such a good turnout for the first SACPAW session of the season. My name is Cheryl Bradley, and I'll be your moderator today. Uh, I should remind you that the session is recorded, so whatever is uh, set into the microphone in this session will be posted on the SACPAW website. So mind your manners. <laughs> I'd also like to remind you to pay for lunch. Please put $10 in the basket on the table, except our guest, and delegate someone at your table to count the money. So if you're eight, 10 times eight is 80. That's sort of mathematics. As you, many of you know, SACPAW is a volunteer nonprofit organization. We re rely on the contribution of members and session attendees to continue our work. So if you feel like making a donation, if you'd like to get a membership to SACPAW, please see Lisa at the side table. I'd also like to acknowledge our partners, the University of Lethbridge, for its support, including the distribution of notices for the sessions. And I would also like to thank Country Kitchen Catering for preparing a good lunch uh, week after week. Uh, as you are aware, the format of the meeting is that there will be a 20 to 30 minute presentation. There will be 30 minutes for lunch and to sort of digest what you've heard. And then there will be 30 minutes for discussion, question, and answers. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our presenter for today. Linda Duncan was elected Member of Parliament for Edmonton Strathcona in October of 2008, becoming only the second New Democrat Member of Parliament ever from the province of Alberta. and the only non-conservative to represent the province in the 40th Parliament of Canada. She serves as environment critic with the NDP caucus. Linda is a member of the Standing Committee on Environment and Sustainable Development and the vice chair of the Parliamentary Committee on Conservation and Biodiversity. Before her election to Parliament, Linda worked as an international environmental law consultant based in Edmonton. She was a senior legal advisor regarding effective environmental enforcement to the Canadian International Development Agency, the World Bank, and the Asian Development Bank in Jamaica, Indonesia, and Bangladesh. She's held senior government positions as the head of law and enforcement cooperation for the North American Commission for Environmental Cooperation, she was Assistant Deputy Minister of Renewable Resources for the Yukon Government and Chief of Enforcement for Environment Canada. She's been a Professor of Environmental Law at Dalhousie Law School, and in the early 1980s, Linda was the Founding Executive Director of the Alberta Environmental Law Centre, and we have had representatives of the Environmental Law Centre talking to us in the past, so it's still a very vibrant organization. It was in the late 1970s in Edmonton that I first met Linda, 
we formed an immediate and lasting friendship. And it is with personal uh, understanding of Linda's insightfulness, her dedication, and her compassion that I introduce her today. Linda. Are people going to be able to see me? You sort of see my little head here. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, It's a great privilege to have the opportunity to speak to you here. I have to be completely honest that I actually came down here to have a holiday. (laughs) And since I was coming down to visit my dear friend Cheryl and Lauren, I knew about this organization. Cheryl has told me about this organization for many years. And I think it's an absolutely phenomenal organization. I wish we had one in Edmonton. We should have one in every community across Canada. And I commend you for both founding this and for keeping it alive. And it's a great privilege for me to be able to be one of your speakers. So I'm going to try to get my mind back into the contention of politics and reform of the law, having spent three wonderful days in uh, the beauty of southern Alberta. And, you know, when I'm... Back in Ottawa, I'll have fond memories to keep me going and remembering why it is that I'm fighting for what I'm fighting for. Um, We saw a lot of uh, beautiful scenery and talked to a lot of real Alberta folk on this trip, and it was, uh, I have lots of treasured moments. Um, As Cheryl mentioned, I have a very eclectic background, but essentially you'd sum me up as an environmental um, advocate, and I'm an advocate for, for two things. One is for environmental governance. And that may sound uh, pretty obvious. Well, of course you're for governance. But what I have noticed over my 40 years of being in the profession of public interest environmental law is the steady erosion of governance in the public interest, and particularly in the environmental field. And that is why I ran for politics. I'm not really your um, normal partisan person. I didn't come into politics by being a partisan person although I was uh, very supportive of, of uh, many new Democrat candidates. I really never had gotten involved. A lot of people wanted me to run. I got involved because I was very worried about a Harper majority. And why, as an environmental lawyer? Well, because I'm fully aware of Mr. Harper's platform, which is to get rid of the federal government in a number of main areas, and one of those is environment. And as an environmental advocate for the public interest over 40 years, working with wonderful people like Cheryl Bradley, and I hope you're appreciative of what a treasure you have down here, because Cheryl has deserved every accolade that she has has earned. And my goal in life as a politician is to make sure that people like Cheryl have a right to be heard, to at least have the perspective heard when we're making decisions about the future of Canada. We're making decisions about the future of Alberta. Whether it's resource extraction, whether it's rights to water, which I know is near and dear to the hearts of everybody in southern Alberta. And when I, even before I started the Environmental Law Centre, I was part of a group in the Canadian Bar Association um, with a number of people, including David Kilgore, who was, of course, originally uh, a liberal, um, no, which direction did he go? One way or the other. Anyway, he was both liberal and conservative. I think he started conservative and then became liberal. It's the other way around. 
And he and I, through the Canadian Bar Association, actually proposed the first provincial-level environmental bill of rights in the late 1970s. Unfortunately, the Bar Association group in Calgary trounced it. So we had it approved by the Northern Alberta Bar Association, and they killed it. As a result, Ontario's claim to fame is they they passed the first environmental bill of rights. So when I got elected, I thought, and you have an opportunity to table um, private members' bills. These are all the things that you learn as a politician. And I thought long and hard about this, and I thought, what an incredible opportunity. I can actually table at the federal level um, a bill that I tried to, to get through at the provincial level 40 years earlier, almost 40 years earlier. And so I'm going to talk to you a bit about the Environmental Bill of Rights, but I'm going to talk about it leading in about why it is that we would need this law in place. And it's all around the theme of, you know, we hear, we've heard for years, the Alberta government talk about balancing interests. We need to balance environment and economy. And we now have that language coming in at the federal level as well. Unfortunately, what it has sadly become is just a lot of rhetoric. And where the rest of the world is moving on is they see environment and economy being fused or integrated, that it isn't one against the other. It isn't you're either going to have a healthy environment or a strong economy. It's you can't have a strong economy unless you protect the environment. So I'm going to talk a bit about that and some of the issues that I've dealt with and then try to fuse that into Environmental Bill of Rights. So that's what it's all about, legally enshrining ecology into the economy. And I made a very interesting, and you apologize if I have a drink once in a while and take a cough drop because I was hiking in uh, the mountains when that smoke came into Alberta. I'm a living, breathing example of why you shouldn't do that. (laughs) So essentially, that's my message. It's not the environment versus the economy. And interestingly, now those of you who probably know far more about language development, and my dear friend Cheryl knows a lot about that and is always quizzing us with these, what do you call those crosswords? Cryptic crosswords. I don't know how she does them. Anyway, it's all about language and understanding it. Well, interestingly, I've been told that ecology means the study of home and economy is the management of home. So doesn't that sound like it makes sense that, in fact, you have to be looking at both of those at the same time? So unless you have a sustainable economy, sustainable environment, you're not going to have a balanced economy, and vice versa. Unless you have a balanced ecology, you're not going to have a sustainable economy. And so I take out of that a line somebody else had. I say it's now, it's the environment, stupid. Whereas other leaders have been known to say it's the economy, stupid. I say it's the environment, stupid. So you'll see two running themes all the time when I talk. One is we need to make sure we integrate environment into decision-making, and secondly, we need to make sure that every Canadian has the right to have a say in decision-making if they so choose. So this has been the favorite line of uh, Prime Minister Harper and Jim Prentice, our current environment minister, and it's we must balance economy and the environment. Yet if you followed what's gone on in this government in the last two budgets, they have used the budget to slowly erode and get rid of the federal government. I forget government, get rid of the federal government. Well, that's the overall objective, to get rid of environment uh, at the federal level. 
And many of us, including Cheryl and probably a good number of you in the room, if you've been involved in the environmental movement, were very active in helping define, and I'm very proud of that. I worked for many years to the Environmental Network to make sure that those of us in the hinterland, I fondly call, fondly call us, also have a say in setting federal law and policy. And we work very hard to have strong federal environmental laws, both the Endangered Species Act, um, strong federal water law, and strong protection against toxins, and strong federal environmental assessment. And the strong federal environmental assessment has been a bugbear in the Alberta government's ear for a long time. And so along comes the Harper government. You know, I say it's fair game. If they don't like the fact that there is federal assessment law, put it on the table and let's have an open discussion about it. If they think that there's duplication, let's let industry come forward and give us the examples. I'm all for that. We've done that for 40, 50 years in Alberta. We're really good at that, at having those kinds of dialogues. But no, they didn't choose to do that. They chose to start eroding federal environmental law through the budget. And that's where the first time around, if, you'll, if you were watching, it was the Navigable Rivers Act. And so their argument was, well, we need to get the economy going, and so we shouldn't be doing environmental reviews of the stimulus package because that's going to slow everything down. When, in fact, we know how efficient we've made those, project, those processes over time. And in most cases, it's just a screening process. There's very rarely a full-fledged federal assessment of a little municipal work. So the first thing they did was they got rid of the Navigable Waters Protection Act in the first budget. This time around was the big blow. And they essentially did two main things. Uh, For all infrastructure projects under that stimulus package, they exempted federal assessment. And that didn't matter what the scale of that project was. The second one was the most reprehensible in my mind. And we have wonderful people in Alberta who, when they're up against the wall and the the government is just not uh, complying with their own laws, they take them to court simply to say, you have a duty, the law says you must do this and so. For example, a very successful case forcing the federal government to enforce the Endangered Species Act to review the sage grouse. Something happened? No, it's okay. (laughs) And uh, what they did was there was a a very famous case at the Supreme Court level where they won a case saying that if you're going to have a huge project like a big mine, was a case in in northern British Columbia, if you're going to have a big oil sands project, you're you're going to potentially impact in federal areas such as transboundary pollution, such as First Nation rights and interests, or Fisheries Act. And so they went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yes, this is exactly why we have assessment laws. It's a preventive measure. So you take a look at the big project, and you identify where there's going to be impacts, and then you decide, can they be mitigated? That's the whole point of it. It's to make it more cost-effective, and so you don't download onto the local community, whether it's a First Nation community or it's a town of Lethbridge. Well, what did they do? They overrode the Supreme Court, and said, we're going to give complete discretion to Jim Prentice, and he can narrow the scope of any federal assessment from now on. It woke up a lot of people. And what they were most upset about was, this reform was supposed to come to my committee, the Parliamentary Committee on Environment and Sustainable Development, this fall. And instead, and that's by law, by law, by statute, the review was due. What they did is they did it through the budget. And when you do it through the budget, there's very little chance to have a dialogue. That's why I was most upset. Um, 
what is a sustainable integrated economy? Well, it's not just me, New Democrat saying that, it's not just me, you know, environmental advocate. It's coming from surprising sources. The International Energy Agency is an association of the fossil fuel industry and major energy um, production uh, nations of the world. So Canada is a member of this International Energy Agency. When the recession hit big time, they came out with this statement, and they said the world is facing two parallel crises, the economic recession and climate change. This is the International Energy Agency saying this. Governments should include green measures in their stimulus plans to stimulate economies in the short term and for the long term to ensure they're sustainable. So that was a message to Canada and all the other big you know, G8 nations. Get serious. It's time to start converting our economy. It's the only way we're going to address both these issues. Also, the head of United Nations Environment Program. Oh, I'm sorry. Here I am thinking, this is what you're trying to signal me. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm such a Luddite. Yak, yak, yak. Okay. <laughs> the second statement out of uh, the United Nations Environment Program, right? A renowned international organization. Instead of pouring more investments into the same old extractive short-term economy of yesterday, nations should move investments towards a new green economy and adopt new forward-looking transformational thinking. Well, the government comes out with their budget speech this year, and Stephen Harper announces that Canada is a clean energy superpower. (laughs) Well, if that's the case, I think that's great, right? I mean, if he made that announcement and then his budget and policies moved that in that in that direction, I think that would be terrific, right? Because it would give us a competitive edge, and we could show the world you can be an energy producer, you can be an energy user, and you can move into the 21st century. So he declares this in the budget, and they also committed to a 90% national target for non... They say non-emitting, but they mean non-greenhouse gas-emitting sources of electricity which is great, so you're thinking, well, they're going to take a lot of measures. You know, you presume they're going to put a lot of money into conservation, like Europe did. Um, They're going to move in the direction that Obama did in his first budget, is transfer over a lot of money towards uh, the renewable sector, both developing and deploying. they're, They're going to transfer money over into a smart grid, which we've talked about for years. They're going to transfer way more money in so that we can retrofit our houses and do our part. That's what you'd think would be happening. Also, at the Copenhagen table, um, we finally got the Harper government to come into our committee and brief us on what they were doing leading into Copenhagen. And it took a lot of persuading. We said, well, we should have a right to see your position paper. So they finally tabled to us, believe it or not, one sheet of paper, both sides. That was the complete Canadian position at Copenhagen. Well, being a person from Alberta, where we rely... What, about 80 or more percent on coal-fired power. And I campaigned for seven years as a volunteer to clean up coal-fired power in Alberta. To the credit of the Alberta government, we are the first jurisdiction in Canada to regulate mercury from coal-fired. And that was a huge victory, which I'm now fighting for at the federal level. So I pay attention when somebody says in their briefing package, we're going to meet our targets on reducing greenhouse gases because we're shutting down coal-fired power in, in Canada. I went, excuse me? You know, because I was aware 
that as they were saying this, we were expanding coal-fired power just outside of Edmonton. So that's something they promised to do. They also promised under this new agreement, the U.S.-Canada Clean Energy Dialogue, that they would work together as the two countries, which is a great concept, and share resources and ideas towards a new clean energy economy and engage Canadians and Americans. Anybody here? Show of hands. Anybody been invited to that dialogue? I haven't either. At the G8, also in, in, I think it was in Pittsburgh, uh, a year back or more, Canada committed, along with the other G8 countries, to reduce the perverse subsidies for fossil fuel industry. Well, that's what they said. And then they also signed on to, I'll I'll slip over this one, because we can talk about this later. I threw in this agreement, the Carta de Syracuse, which Cheryl probably knows far more about than I do, but that was an agreement that uh, the G8 countries also signed on to. And they agreed at those meetings that biodiversity and ecosystems play a very important uh, aspect in human well-being, achieving the Millennium Development Goals, food security, and water availability. So you think right away we're going to step up investment in all those. They will committed to take timely action to engage in science. And then they cut all the federal funds for science. Committing to biodiversity, fostering comprehensive research, so on and so forth. Well, then what did they do? So this is what, oops, <laughs> I need Cheryl up here. What, what did they actually do? Well, one of the first things that they did, you know, how many people have been able to take advantage of these home energy retrofit subsidies? Anybody here? You know, it's hard to find out about these programs, first of all. They don't really go out of the way to advertise them. They were actually highly overly subscribed. I mean, people really, really appreciated those programs to reduce their energy use, but just frankly to reduce their, their home budget bill, you know, their bill to keep their home going. And um, they've, they've ended that program. If you're not signed up now, that's it. No more federal assistance. They also had a fantastic program in place, the federal government had. I think it was the Liberals probably put it in place, and the Conservatives sort of carried over some of that money for not only developing but actually deploying, putting into effect renewable power. And it wasn't just a gift out. It was just sort of an incentive to, to keep it going. Well, they killed that as well. It was oversubscribed. There were so many small businesses in Canada that were so excited about this and building up, and this was the real innovation and entrepreneurship in energy uh, field in Canada. And they killed the program. So a whole lot of companies I've talked to, and they're afraid to go public for fear that the little funding that they had might be yanked, they're all moving to the U.S. or they've moved overseas to Germany and other countries. And then they took away uh, a lot of the regulatory powers, well, if you don't um, look at the environmental impact assessment of a big project that's going on near a municipality and there's impacts, guess who's going to bear those costs, right? It's going to be the municipality. And then what they did was, in their so-called subsidy to clean energy, 90, I don't know how what percentage of that money has all gone just to two entities. One is to coal-fire power in Alberta, and the other is for uh, the oil sands industry. Most of the oil sands industry pulled out, and this was for subsidies for carbon capture and sequestration. So, you know, the world says, okay, that might be one answer. 
And people need to be supporting that, but we need to be doing everything at once. We need to be moving and putting in place renewable power. We need to be retrofitting businesses and homes. And maybe in the interim, we need to be doing carbon capture and storage. Hundreds of millions of dollars of your dollars, your taxpayers' dollars, has gone into subsidize TransAlta and Shell. And still, they haven't even proven the pilot. So the big question that's still out there, who's going to pay for this? And is it even affordable? So, you know, maybe it would have made sense if they put some money into that and said, we'll cost share with the industry. And then we'll put a lot more subsidy into the renewable. No, they took it all of the renewable and poured all that money into those, those two corporations. <clears throat> and I wanted to add that it's not just, you know, so-called lefties or alternative thinkers who are saying that we need a new energy strategy for Canada. And, of course, one can never say that national energy program, she whispers. And so people very carefully say, you know, we need a national energy strategy. Well, who has called for that? Well, former conservative trade minister and chair of the Energy Institute, David Emerson, hardly a left-wing thinker. The Canada West Foundation, right? They're not, you know, wing net. They're, you know, pretty sound organization, do analysis. They called a year back a need for a national energy strategy for sustainability and security for Canadians. What is our energy strategy in Canada right now? We'll provide a secure supply to the United States. I mean, if you don't have a policy in place, right, you let the, the market determine, well, that's what they're doing. They're making sure they got contracts in place, and we're going to make sure that that energy flows south. United, even George Bush put a national energy security strategy in place. He passed legislation to ensure that nationally they would have control of electricity and energy. And then Obama sh um, built on that and massively shifted his policies to make sure that they had a clean energy supply. And that's why he shifted over hundreds of millions of dollars into renewable energy into smart energy grid. Not Canada. And Preston Manning, right? He's talked about these kinds of issues. There was a poll as well that said 64% of Canadians opposed government cutbacks on global efforts to tackle global warming in the response to the economic crisis. We have to be dealing with both at the same time. And now in the Arctic, sad to say... You know, all those hundreds of millions of dollars are all into, you know, measuring the continental shelf, making sure that we secure that we're going to get the revenue from wherever that drilling goes ahead or the mining. At the same time, they can the whole Arctic scientific study program. That money is gone. No more new money. Now, they are putting money into uh, a research station, which will be available some years into the future. And the scientists are saying, okay, well, we're going to have a piece of that. That's good. But it's not going to do us any good if we don't do the research into the future. And we also don't put a lot of money into what about the sustainability of the Arctic communities. Um, it's not just us who are saying that. The Auditor General did a report last year. They do regular audits on a number of areas. And to her credit, what she did was she audited how good of a job the federal government is doing on monitoring, on doing a baseline of, of the north to see if, you know, where are things now and if we're monitoring and assessing the impacts. And she gave them a total failing grade. Ooh, two minutes. Move on, move on. Okay, so enough about the Arctic. What about the prairies? 
Well, those of us in the prairies who've worked on these issues long enough know is what's the key issue? Water. Water, water. And a lot of people are calling for we need a, a national water strategy. What I'm saying is we need a national energy strategy because the biggest hit on our water resources, and certainly in this jurisdiction, is water use. And I certainly know that in the Edmonton area because those upgraders are going to be using North Saskatchewan River water. It's not just the impact on the Athabasca River. So I will tell you succinctly in, uh, <clears throat> in just a couple of words and in questions, you can ask me more questions about this, is what is the Environmental Bill of Rights? Um, in most countries in the world, what, over 120 nations, they've actually enshrined in their constitution the right to a clean, healthy environment. We don't have that in our constitution. Um, in some provincial jurisdictions, they've actually put that right in place in Ontario and Quebec and so forth. Why would I put in place an Environmental Bill of Rights? Well, I mentioned that at the beginning for two key reasons. What the Environmental Bill of Rights does is it takes the promises that Stephen Harper ran on when he was first elected, right? He said he wants to replace the Liberal government because we need a government that is more accountable and, gra and has grassroots engagement. And he's gone completely in the opposite direction. What the Environmental Bill of Rights would do is that it would impose an obligation on the government to hold the public for a public trust to protect the environment. And it would give the right of the public to hold them accountable. It would give the right of the public to have a seat at the table any time a critical decision is made, such as a budget that is impacting the environment, such as an environmental law, anything, that you could have a seat at the table and speak about that, the future of your economy and the impacts. It gives you the right to, to actually take the government to court, not to get money out of them, but to have the court rule that the government did not enforce that law or the government did not protect the, the public trust. And the third one is it would give the power of the, to the Auditor General to review any proposed new law or policy to make sure that it respects uh, the rights and duties under the Environmental Bill of Rights. So there we are. That's quick and dirty. You see, I always think I'm never going to talk long enough. And there's so much to talk about. So I'm looking forward to having this lovely lunch, and then I'm looking forward to uh, your questions and having a dialogue with you.